Welcome to the Trip Hacks DC podcast. Discover the best tips, tricks, and travel hacks for your visit to the nation's capital. And now, here's Rob. Hello, and thank you for tuning in. If you want to check out any show notes from this episode, listen to other episodes, or learn about Trip Hacks DC guided tours, you can do all of that over at TripHacksDC.com. If you're new to this podcast or Trip Hacks DC in general, hello, my name is Rob. I'm a tour guide, and I founded Trip Hacks DC back in 2017. My goal is to give you my best tips, tricks, and travel hacks so you can have the best possible trip when you come here to Washington, D.C. Today, I'm going to run through a big list of Washington, D.C. experiences and tell you whether I think you should do it or whether I think you should skip it. The reality is there are far more potential things to do in Washington, D.C. than most visitors can ever squeeze into a trip. In general, I personally don't believe in quote-unquote must-dos. I think that everyone has their own unique interests and preferences. So when I'm talking about whether you should do something or skip an experience, there are probably going to be a lot of caveats. Something I think one person should do, I might say that someone else should skip. So that's a bit of the background, and because I have a giant list of things to cover, let's go ahead and jump right into it. Starting with the three branches of government, and first up, the White House. The White House is open to the public for tours. These are quite limited. They only operate in the morning and on certain days of the week. At the time I'm recording this, public tours of the White House are available from 9.30 a.m. to 12.30 p.m., Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday, excluding federal holidays. They are also dependent on what's going on inside the White House. If an important foreign president or prime minister is visiting, it is entirely possible public tours will not be offered while they are in town. White House tours are, quite frankly, a pain to set up. If you're an American, you have to arrange these through your member of Congress's office. Without getting too into it, I will say that some offices are more helpful and better equipped at what we call constituent services than others. I've had tour guests tell me that the person they worked with in their rep's office was extremely pleasant and helpful. I've had other people tell me their rep's office ghosted them and they were completely unhelpful. So your mileage may vary. If you're not an American, you have to contact your country's embassy in D.C. In 2023, almost all embassies will tell you they don't have the capacity to deal with these kinds of requests. Sorry. If you're not an American, I think the public White House tour is an experience you should skip. It's too much work for too little reward. For Americans, if the reason you want to do this is because you feel like it's something you should do, but don't really have any other compelling reason to want to do it, you have my permission to skip it. I really believe the public White House tour is quite underwhelming. Another reason I put this on the skip list is because I see all the time people who wind up getting burned by the scheduling process. Here's what I mean. Say you're in D.C. for just three days, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. So you contact your member of Congress's office and say, hey, I'm available on all three of these days. I hope you can get me in. You don't actually find out whether you're going to the White House or not until about a week or two out. In the meantime, people hold large chunks of time off their schedule because they don't want to book something else and then have the White House come back and say, okay, your tour is on Friday at 11 a.m. For example, Trip Hacks DC private tours run on Saturday mornings. I have had multiple people over the years contact me and say they put in for a White House tour on multiple dates and they want to sign up for the TripHex DC tour, but they feel like they can't because they're holding all of Saturday plus Friday plus some other days for the White House. Then either they get scheduled for the White House on a different date or they get turned down altogether. By the time they find this out, it's too late and somebody else has already booked the TripHex DC tour. So for them, it's doubly disappointing. All of that said, the White House is one of the most popular tourist sites in Washington, D.C. And if it is your lifelong dream to say you've gone inside the White House, then do it. Or if you have some other strong desire, then put in a request. Just be smart about the dates you request and don't expect to get a reservation. A lot of people get turned down. 
either because they are here during busy tourist season and there's more demand than they can accommodate, or the public isn't allowed in the White House on their date for whatever reason. Okay, so that's a lot to say about the White House. If you've been following TripHacks DC for a while, you probably already knew the public tour of the White House is not one of my personal favorites. I think it winds up being underwhelming or a letdown for a lot of people. A good alternative is actually the White House Visitor Center right across the street on Pennsylvania Avenue. For me, that's a do. It's a small museum with some cool White House history and artifacts. It opens early, and it's great because it requires no tickets or reservations. Also, I will say, if you are ever lucky enough to get a West Wing tour of the White House, which is only available if you know a White House staffer who can act as your personal tour guide, I do think that is worth it. But it's also a lot, lot more exclusive than the standard public tour that you request through your representative's office. Let's transition over to the Capitol, which I have very different feelings about. I do think the Capitol Tour is one of the few universal must-dos in Washington, D.C. It's an amazing building and an experience that you can't replicate anywhere else. Standing in the rotunda and admiring the art and architecture of the dome is an amazing thing to do. The Capitol is also much more accessible for tourists thanks to the Capitol Visitor Center. So if you want to tour the Capitol, even if you're from another country, it's fairly easy to do so. Just go to the Capitol Visitor Center website, choose the date and time that you want to go, sign up, and then show up at your assigned time. Well, actually show up before your assigned time to give yourself plenty of time to get to the Visitor Center and get through security. When you sign up for a tour through the Capitol Visitor Center, you will be assigned to a group with a professional tour guide. In the industry, we call these tour guides red coats because the Visitor Center uniform is a red jacket. Redcoats are professional tour guides and they will give you a great tour and it's all completely free. There is one other way you can tour the Capitol though and I want to talk about whether I think this is a do or skip. If you are an American, you can do what's called a congressional office tour, which is arranged through your member of Congress's office and led by one of their staff. Most of the time, and especially in the summer, the staff member leading your tour will be an intern. Now, The biggest benefit to the Congressional Office Tour is that they usually keep the group sizes smaller than the Visitor Center Tours. Visitor Center Tour groups can often be 40 people to a single tour guide, which is a huge group. Congressional Office Tours rarely get this big. When you think about it, most folks sign up for an unpaid internship in a Congressional Office because they want to pursue a career, not as a tour guide. They're probably doing it because they want to get their foot in the door to work in politics or policy or the law. As a result, the quality of your intern tour guide can run the spectrum. Some are great and take giving tours with a ton of responsibility. Others don't care as much about tours because they feel like that's not what they're there for. Practically speaking, tour guiding is a skill and it takes a lot of practice to develop. I've been a tour guide for over a decade, and I promise you that the tours I gave my first couple of years as a tour guide were not even close to the standard that I hold myself to now. The very nature of congressional internships is that you are only going to be there for a few months at most before moving on to the next thing. There's just not enough time to truly develop good tour guiding skills. All of that said, I've met folks who were thrilled with their intern tour guide. I've met others who said their intern tour guide was a complete dud. It's kind of a gamble. Maybe you get lucky, maybe you don't. I think if you want to skip the congressional office tour, you have my permission to skip it. A capital tour is something you should do however you wind up doing it. Now, let's head across the street to the Supreme Court. A lot of people don't know this, but you can visit the Supreme Court. The building is open to the public on weekdays from 9 a.m. to 3 p.m., excluding federal holidays and excluding days when court is scheduled to hear oral arguments. If you don't know when oral argument days are, you need to go to the Supreme Court website and look at the calendar to find out. The Supreme Court building does have some amazing architecture and pretty cool, even if small, exhibits that you can see. My advice for this one is, If you're a lawyer, a law student, or someone who is really into the law, then the Supreme Court is an experience that you should do. 
If you're the kind of person who dreads jury duty and your eyes glaze over when you hear about Supreme Court cases in the news, then this is one you should probably skip. Now, you can't talk about Washington, D.C. tourism without talking about the national monuments and memorials. Everyone's first thought is probably the Lincoln Memorial, potentially the Washington Monument, but there are quite a few others as well. And I think the National Monuments and Memorials are a must-do. The harder question for you is, how should you see them? There are no shortage of options for seeing the monuments and memorials. On one end of the spectrum, you could just open up Google Maps and wander around and look at them on your own. Lots of people see them this way. On the other end of the spectrum is something like a private guided tour, which is how most folks who sign up for a TripHex DC tour see them. I think if you can afford a guided tour, you should see them on a tour. I know a private tour is a bit of a splurge for many people, but the good news is that there are lots of tour options at all price points. The one thing I will say is critically important is if you sign up for a tour, make sure that it actually has a human tour guide. A lot of big bus companies are still marketing and selling what they call tours even though it's just a bus ride around to the different sites. And to me, a bus ride with no tour guide is not a tour. It's transportation. So definitely yes to do the Monuments Memorials, and yes to experiencing them on a guided tour if you can afford it. What about going up inside the Washington Monument? The Washington Monument is the tallest building in the city, by a large margin. It is objectively a nice view assuming the weather is decent at the time you go up. That said, if you're a fan of observatories in places like New York or Chicago, the Washington Monument is not that. In New York City, there are now observatories with clear floors. In Chicago, you can lean out over the sky. Observatories have floor-to-ceiling glass and champagne bars, and these are all gimmicks. They're fun, sure, but they are gimmicks. The Washington Monument doesn't have any gimmicks. It's just eight tiny windows, 500-ish feet in the air. The annoying thing is that because space is so limited, and because this is in high demand, and because tickets are essentially free, it's kind of hard to get a ticket. So for the Washington Monument, you have my permission to skip this one if you're only on the fence about it. You should probably also skip it if you're claustrophobic, as it is pretty tight in the space up at the top. A good alternative is the old post office tower, which is not as tall as the Washington Monument, but has much smaller crowds and still a very nice view. Some people even like the old post office more because it's open to the outside, whereas the Washington Monument is enclosed. So yes to a view, if you're okay with heights and not claustrophobic, but perhaps skip the Washington Monument in favor of the old post office. The other big thing Washington, D.C. is known for when it comes to tourism is being an amazing museum city. And it's not just the Smithsonian. There are lots of museums in D.C. that are either part of different institutions or completely independent, so let's run through some of them. Smithsonian is not the name of a single museum, but it's an institution that oversees many museums. What makes Smithsonian special is that it has a lot of amazing artifacts, the museums are generally well curated, and for visitors, they are completely free to visit. Unless you hate museums for some reason, I think Smithsonian is an experience you should have. That said, which one should you pick? My advice when it comes to museums is to pick whatever is most interesting to you. You won't have time to do them all. You just won't. Last year, on episode 41 of this podcast, I interviewed a local who was on a mission to go to every museum in D.C. She did accomplish the mission, but it took about an entire year to do it. So if you're only here for a few days, you've got to pick and choose. The most popular Smithsonian museums are the big three, Air and Space, Natural History, and American History. I personally prefer American history of the big three because I'm a history guy and it's what I'm interested in. I personally feel like the Air and Space Museum leaves a lot to be desired, but many people feel the opposite. Again, it's a bit of a personal thing. 
A Smithsonian site that I don't think anyone would call a museum is the National Zoo. Officially, its name is the Smithsonian National Zoological Park. It's a place whose mission is conservation, research, and education. It's not a theme park. The National Zoo is not the biggest zoo in America. Lots of other cities have bigger zoos. If you want a big zoo, check out cities like Omaha, Columbus, San Diego, or New York City. The National Zoo, in many ways, is more like a small neighborhood zoo than a major world attraction. I actually kind of like it that way, to be honest. The National Zoo is also free to visit, which is something that cannot be said for every zoo, especially zoos of the caliber of this one. In my observation, the National Zoo is best if you have kids, especially small kids. So if you're traveling with kids in tow, the National Zoo is definitely a do. If you're traveling without kids, but really like zoos and visiting zoos, then I would also say that it's a do. For everyone else who's traveling without kids and kind of indifferent to zoos, I would say the National Zoo is a skip. I say this because Washington DC has many unique sites, things you can't see anywhere else, and a zoo is something you can kind of experience just about anywhere. Jumping back to museums, one thing not a lot of people know is that Smithsonian is not the only game in town. There are other museums and museum institutions in DC, some run by the federal government, some privately owned and operated. The National Gallery of Art is an example of a museum institution that's run by the federal government, but independent from Smithsonian. As the name suggests, it's an art museum, and frankly, a really good art museum. The East Building is where you'll find a lot of classical and European art. The West Building is where you'll find modern and contemporary art. Think your Picasso and Warhol. And the Sculpture Garden is where you'll find your outdoor art. And also where you'll find special events, like ice skating in the winter and jazz in the garden in the summer. I think for a true art lover, the National Gallery is a do. It's definitely not as famous as the Louvre. It's probably not as famous as the Met. But unlike both of those, it's free and is still pretty great. On the other hand, if the idea of looking at art bores you to tears, then I think you can safely skip it. A quasi-private-slash-government-run museum is the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum. This one opened in 1993 and provides for the documentation, study, and interpretation of Holocaust history. This is a powerful museum. This is not a happy museum. This is not a fun way to spend your time. That said, I think this is a must-do for everyone in the world at least once in their life. But if you've done it before, or you're traveling with kids who are too young for it, then I think it can be skipped. Just make sure you do it at least once in your lifetime. Okay, let's run through some other private museums in town. First is Planet Word, which is a museum of language arts. This one is relatively new. It opened in 2020 and yes, had absolutely terrible timing with COVID. It actually took me until 2022 to check this one out, but I was absolutely blown away with how interesting and fun it is. I would say Planet Word is a do if you're looking for a museum where you can have fun for a few hours. This one is also great for kids. I've had many people tell me it was one of their kids' favorite museums. And I think a big part of it is that it's interactive, unlike a lot of the more standard museums, which are very educational, but sometimes in a bit of a dry way. I can't really think of who I would tell to skip this one. Maybe if you aren't an English speaker, a lot of material might be harder to interpret. Or if you absolutely dreaded going to English class back when you were in school. But for most people, I would say it's a do. At the time I'm recording this, Planet Word is donation-based. So you could go for free, but it's so good, I would encourage you to chip in a few bucks. Next up is the International Spy Museum, which is not free or donation-based. This is probably the most expensive museum in DC, but even so, still potentially worth it. The Spy Museum documents the tradecraft, history, and contemporary role of espionage. 
it holds the largest collection of international espionage artifacts on public display. The first iteration of the spy museum was in an office building downtown near the Capital One Arena. They outgrew that space and moved to a much larger and nicer space at LaFont Plaza in 2019. I personally think the spy museum is fun. But since it's the first paid museum I've talked about, and since it's a relatively expensive paid museum at that, we now have the added variable of not just is it worth it, but is it worth the price of admission. Just like Planet Word, the Spy Museum is great for kids who want a more interactive museum experience. It's also fun for any adult who's into spycraft or James Bond type movies. So I would say if that describes you, then it's a do. On the other hand, if you haven't seen a James Bond movie in the last decade, then maybe it's a skip. Another private museum people frequently ask me about is the Museum of the Bible. This museum documents the narrative, history, and impact of the Bible. For this one, I would say, if you go to church more than once a week, it's a do. If you go to church on Sunday and enjoy it, it's a do. Otherwise, it's a skip. This museum seems to appeal to folks who consider themselves religious, but if that's not you, I think it might have limited appeal. Another private museum people ask me about is the National Building Museum. This is a museum of architecture, design, engineering, construction, and urban planning. And despite having the word national in the name, it is privately run. There are some free areas here, but the best exhibits are usually the paid exhibits. I personally love the building museum. I've met families who told me their kids loved the building museum. So if you're into any of the topics I mentioned, architecture, engineering, construction, or urban planning, I would check out the Building Museum website and see what's on display while you're here. They do rotate exhibits pretty frequently, so there's usually something fresh to see. And if something catches your interest, it's a do. There are lots of other great private museums in DC, but overall, there is just so much to do and see here that I would say the more obscure private museums are probably only a do if you've been here before and exhausted all of the ones I've already covered. Okay, my iced coffee needs a refill, but before we break, let's recap everything we've covered so far. White House is a skip, unless you can get a West Wing tour, in which case, do. The Capitol is a must do. The Supreme Court is a do if you're a lawyer or law student or super into the law, and a skip if you're not. The National Monuments and Memorials are a must do. A guided tour of the monuments is a do. A bus tour of the monuments is a skip, but if you must, make sure there is a human tour guide. The Washington Monument is a do if you want a view, and are okay with heights, and you're not claustrophobic, but a skip if you're on the fence about it. The old post office tower is a good substitute if you want a view, but are wishy-washy on the Washington Monument. Smithsonian museums are a do. Which museum specifically depends on your personal tastes and interests. The National Zoo is a do if you're traveling with kids or you're really into zoos, but a skip if you're not. The National Gallery of Art is a do if you're into art and a skip if you're not. The Holocaust Museum is a do once in your lifetime. Planet Word is a do. Spy Museum is a do if you're into spycraft and James Bond. A skip if you're not. Bible Museum is a do if you're religious. Skip if you're not. The Building Museum is a do if you're into architecture, engineering, or urban planning. And a skip if you're not. And the plethora of other private museums are a do if you've been to D.C. before or live here and have exhausted everything else so far. Whew. That's a lot so far, and there is still a ton more to go, so let's take a quick break, and then we'll cover the rest. If you're listening to this podcast, my hunch is that you're probably planning an upcoming trip to Washington, D.C., or at least dreaming about a future adventure. One thing I've learned from meeting thousands of travelers and doing a bit of traveling myself over the years is that experiences are usually the best memories from a trip. That's why I started Trip Hacks DC. I didn't just want to create content to help you plan a trip, but also to provide an amazing experience once you arrive. 
And I think it's worked because people tell me all the time that their Trip Hacks DC tour was the highlight of their trip. And that really makes me happy. So if that's something that sounds up your alley, you can head over to TripHacksDC.com to learn about taking a private tour with me or a public group tour with one of the amazing Trip Hacks DC tour guides. And we're back. Let's cover some of the big federal government sites next, because that's one of the things Washington, D.C. tourism is known for. First, Arlington National Cemetery. I have gone back and forth on this one as I've been thinking about this episode. On the one hand, it is, at the end of the day, a cemetery, the final resting place for military members and their families. And I think it should be treated as such and not simply as a tourist attraction. That said, there are some really unique things to see here, like the changing of the guard at the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier, JFK's Eternal Flame, and Arlington House. So ultimately, I do think this is a do, but with the caveat that you have to treat it with respect and not just another thing for tourists to do. Next up is the National Archives, which most visitors know as the place to go see old documents the original Declaration of Independence, Constitution, and Bill of Rights. You can definitely go see all of those things there, and many people do. But there's also a really nice museum in the building as well. The permanent exhibit is called Records of Rights, which is about how documents and records have been used in the development of the country. There's also often a rotating exhibit. At the time I'm recording this, the rotating exhibit is called All-American, the power of sports, and is all about how sports helped shape the country. So the National Archives is a do, and also a do is to reserve a timed entry pass. It's not required, but it will let you skip the general admission line and save yourself some time. After that, we have the Library of Congress. It is the official research service of the U.S. Congress and the de facto National Library. It does have books, tons of books. Unlike your local public library, though, you can't check them out, but you can read them if you register for a reader's card. For most visitors, you're not going here to read books. You're going to see the Jefferson Building, which in my opinion is the most beautiful building architecturally in all of Washington, D.C. In the before times, the main reading room was off limits to the general public. So going in was reserved to just a couple of open houses during the year. Now the main reading room is open for a few hours on certain days of the week, which you can find on the Library of Congress website. There are also usually several very good exhibits that you can check out. The permanent exhibit is Thomas Jefferson's Library, which is a recreated collection of Jefferson's 6,487 volumes and quite fascinating to see. One of my personal favorite exhibits was a temporary exhibit about Rosa Parks that was on display for a bit. I learned a ton about her that I didn't know before. When the MLB All-Star Game was in DC back in 2018, the Library of Congress had a very cool baseball exhibit that a lot of people enjoyed. So this is all to say, I think the Library of Congress is a do. It's a beautiful building and extremely unique. It's not open every day of the week, unfortunately. But if it's open on the same day you go to the Capitol, I think it's a good one to do afterward because it's right across the street. Another site close to the Capitol is the U.S. Botanic Gardens. I describe this as a museum of plants. I personally have very limited knowledge of plants, horticulture, or any of that, but I always have a nice time when I visit. This is not a huge site, so most people won't need more than a few hours here. But I would say if you're in the vicinity and have a few hours to squeeze it in, it's a do. I don't think I would make a special trip over here unless you are really into horticulture. A bonus do is to go across the street, Independence Avenue, and see the Bartholdi Fountain and Gardens. The fountain was originally built in Philadelphia for the centennial of the country, and eventually purchased by Congress and moved to Washington, D.C. If the name Bartholdi sounds familiar, 
it's probably because you took a tour of the Statue of Liberty and learned about him as he was the designer of the statue. Also, if you're in D.C. during the holidays, specifically between Thanksgiving and New Year's, come over to the Botanic Gardens because they do a really good Christmas and holiday programming. My personal favorite is the model train display, which used to be set up indoors, but they moved outdoors during COVID. I'm not sure where it's going to be in the future, but whether indoors or outdoors is really cool to see. Okay, next on the list is Ford's Theater. This is the theater that is infamous for being the site of the assassination of Abraham Lincoln in 1865. The theater itself and the Peterson House across the street make up the Ford's Theater National Historic Site, which is operated by the National Park Service during the day. Then there is also programming within the theater, which is operated separately by the Ford's Theater Society. So during the day, you can come here and hear a park ranger lecture about the events that happened on the infamous night in 1865. Then you can come back after dinner and take in a show. The current configuration has over 600 theater seats, which is a pretty decent size. I would say if you're a big history buff, especially if you're into Abraham Lincoln history, Ford's Theater is a do. I think unless you really want to see a show that's only playing at Ford's Theater, or you really want to see a show in the theater, then you can skip that portion of it. Next up is the Bureau of Engraving and Printing, where the government prints paper money. This is, air quote, temporarily closed. It's been temporarily closed for years, and there's no firm reopening date. That said, I have always thought this is a skip. The best way I ever heard it described was from one of my former tour customers who said, if you've seen money and you've seen a printer, you've seen everything they have there. I do think this site is geared toward kids who can get a kick out of seeing a smallish stack of bills that you're told adds up to a million dollars. Because we all know coming up with a million dollars is as easy as finding some stacks of $100 bills. I know some people used to like coming here, but I've just never been into it. Sorry. And next, I want to talk about a site that a lot of people think is a federal government site, but that is actually completely private. Mount Vernon, or George Washington's home. The tricky thing about Mount Vernon is that it's not in D.C. George Washington lived in Virginia about 17 miles south of downtown. So that's not so far that you can't go there and back in a day, but it's just far enough that transportation can be a challenge. Metro only gets you about halfway there, which means you either need to take a bus or a taxi or an Uber the rest of the way. Even though I strongly believe tourists have no business driving in D.C., Getting to Mount Vernon might be one of the few exceptions to that rule. Ultimately, I feel similarly about Mount Vernon as I do about Ford's Theater. If you're a big George Washington history buff, Mount Vernon is a do. If you're on the fence about it, or you already have a packed itinerary, because of the location and transportation challenges, I think it's probably a skip. One thing I will add is that Mount Vernon tends to have very good holiday programming. For example, on the 4th of July, they have a lot of really cool stuff happening. And it's also one of the few things around town that's open on Christmas Day. So on Christmas Day, if you're looking for something to do, Mount Vernon is a definite do. All right. Now, the title of this episode is about DC experiences. And not every experience is necessarily a tourist site in the traditional sense. So let's talk about some food and drink experiences and whether I would put them on the do or skip list. First up is food trucks. There was a period of time when some of the best food came out of the back of trucks. You could go to Farragut Square on a weekday during lunch hour and find amazing options. There used to be an event on Fridays at the Bullpen near Nationals Park. I wish I could remember what this was called but they would let a dozen or so food trucks park around the perimeter and you could come and eat and get drinks from the bar and it was just a fun time. I'm afraid to say that I think food trucks peaked a long time ago. There are still food trucks in DC, but the best food no longer comes out of trucks. A lot of the best trucks like District Taco, 
Swizzler, and Taquerian opened real brick-and-mortar restaurants. A lot of the food trucks that remain cater primarily to tourists. And the problem with restaurants that cater primarily to tourists, whether they're on wheels or not, is that their primary goal is to be convenient, not to be good. So if you're hungry and there is nothing else nearby and you just want something to eat, you just want nourishment, food trucks can be a do. If you want good food, they're a skip. Next is cupcakes. Similarly to food trucks, I think cupcakes peaked long ago. There was a reality TV show on cable set at Georgetown Cupcake. I think it ran from roughly 2010 to 2012 or 13. People were going absolutely crazy for cupcakes during these years. The line outside Georgetown Cupcake went all the way down the block. I remember I used to bike past their store semi-frequently, and there was always a line. And I kind of feel like being able to say you stood in that line for 30 minutes or 45 minutes or an hour was part of the allure. I don't know. I never did it. A lot of locals will often snobbishly say that the real cupcake connoisseurs know the good cupcakes are not at Georgetown Cupcake. They're on the other side of the neighborhood at Baked and Wired. I personally find cupcakes from both establishments far too sweet for my liking. But at least at Baked and Wired, they have pretty good coffee that I can use to choke them down. That said, I know lots of people like cupcakes, they like sugar, they like sweet stuff. So my advice is, if you like sweets, and I'm talking really sweet, get a famous cupcake, it might be worth it. Otherwise, there are so many other good bakeries and ice cream shops and places to get dessert that I would skip cupcakes and go to any of them instead. What about the signature DC foods, by which I mean half-smoked sausages and wings with mumbo sauce? Even though I rarely eat these myself, I actually do think they're a do. I think one of the best parts of going to a new destination is trying the local signature foods, even if you wind up not liking them. The most famous place to go get a half-smoke is Ben's Chili Bowl on U Street. And please, if you're going to do this, go to the original location on U Street, not the Ben's in the airport or the one at Nationals Park. Ben's has some amazing history and amazing owners, and you really need to go to the original location to experience that. If you're going to go down this road, I do think a food tour is a do. I love food tours, and I do them whenever I travel to a new place. The reason it's great is because it's an efficient way to sample a lot of foods at once. And when you consider that you're also getting a full-blown neighborhood tour, it's actually quite a good value. The food tour I recommend is Blue Fern, and I have an entire list over at triphacksdc.com slash local tours of all the local tour companies, including this one, that I recommend. Since Washington, D.C. is a world capital, it stands to reason that there are a lot of international foods here as well, and that's very true. You can find food from just about every country on the globe if you know where to look. The two countries in particular that you should seek out, though, are Ethiopia and El Salvador. In the old days, Ethiopian food was hard to find, and coming to D.C. was one of the few places where you could find it. These days, it can be found in quite a few major cities. But it's still really big in D.C. because many Ethiopians migrated to D.C. starting in the 1970s. Ethiopian food is unique because it's usually a plate of meats and vegetables served with injera, which is an Ethiopian flatbread. You use the injera to pick up your items and eat them. So there's no forks and no knives. It's finger food. And if you're not so sure about that, think of it this way. A friend of mine once said, if you eat bread and dip, then I don't know how you couldn't be okay with Ethiopian food. I think this is a do. If you've never had it before, a sampler plate is usually the best way to go. Salvadorian food is also very good. And please don't think it's Mexican food. They are two completely different countries with very different foods. Pupusas are probably the most iconic Salvadorian dish. Usually, pupusas are served as meats, beans, and cheeses with thick corn tortillas that you use to pick up your fillings. 
And an important thing that I actually learned from Walter's World is don't fill up the tortillas like a taco. Use the tortillas as a scoop to pick up your food. So those are the two countries that I would start with. But honestly, you can find good food from any country in D.C. That said, sometimes people ask me for recommendations for Chinese food in Chinatown. And for that, I will say skip it. Unfortunately, D.C.'s Chinatown is kind of a shell of its former self. The best Chinese food in the area is up in Rockville. That's in the suburbs, and it's far enough away that I don't think it's worth a special trip for. If you're a beer connoisseur, I know it's kind of cliche in 2023 to say that your city has a big craft beer scene because that's pretty much every mid- and large-sized city these days. But D.C. does have a somewhat unique area called the Metropolitan Branch Trail, or what some people have tried rebranding as, the Metropolitan Beer Trail. There are 11 stops on the route. Some are breweries, some are just cool bars that you can stop at for a beverage. If you're into beer and willing to spend part of your trip doing this, I'd say it's a do. If you're not into beer, it's a skip. If you're on the fence or you're curious, I actually did a live stream of this area over the summer with a special guest, so you can check that out and see what it looks like. All right, now let's do some transportation-based experiences. I've already covered bus tours, which I think are a skip. But what about a boat tour or a river cruise? I think these are mostly a skip. It kind of bothers me that some companies advertise a monuments tour by boat because at best you can see the back of the Lincoln Memorial, the back of the Jefferson Memorial, and kind of the Washington Monument from a distance. It's definitely a stretch to say you're going to see monuments from the water. Now, if you just really like boats or going out on boats, a river cruise might be worth it. That said, a lot of river cruises are basically floating bars. So you go out on the water and you order your drinks and you just hang out. This can be a do if that's the kind of experience you're looking for. There are also dinner cruises, which I think are a skip, as I've never heard anyone say they had an amazing time on one but I have heard people say they had higher expectations and the food wasn't that great. And of course, there's the water taxi, which you can ride between Georgetown, the wharf, and Alexandria. I have mixed feelings about the water taxi. I've used water taxis in other cities and they're great as transportation, but the water taxi in DC recently got acquired by a big tourism conglomerate They raised prices, and now it's more of a tourist attraction than it is transportation. For example, on a Saturday or Sunday, you can get a family of four to and from Old Town Alexandria round trip for a little less than $20 on Metro. To do that same trip on water taxi would be over $130. I'm willing to say water taxi is worth a premium, But a six times premium? I don't know. I think this is a do if you really want to go on the river and are okay with the price, but a skip if you want transportation between point A and point B. Speaking of Metro, I think this is definitely a do. Now you might be thinking, how is public transportation an experience and how is it a do? I think ultimately Metro is transportation. But I also think the sad reality is that many Americans visit Washington, D.C. from places that have limited or no public transportation. For many people, riding Metro on a trip to D.C. might be the first time they've ever ridden a Metro or a subway before. Metro is far from perfect, and every local has plenty of stories of frustrations with it. But I think in general it is quite good. And I think everyone should experience decent public transportation and at least be able to go back home and say, this is something that is possible if there's enough determination and political will. One more transportation-related experience people sometimes ask me about is Union Station. Is it worth going to Union Station? Union Station is a beautiful train station, at least the front part of the building. It has amazing architecture and plenty of interesting history. It also has a big food court and some of my favorite fast casual restaurants. That said, all of the restaurants have locations elsewhere in the city and none of them are exclusive to Union Station. The food court also tends to be overrun with 8th graders on field trips. 
I would say if you're traveling by train, either coming or going, then arrive a few minutes early and appreciate the architecture and maybe get something to eat. Otherwise, it's a skip. Don't go out of your way for Union Station. Okay, wow. We've covered a lot, but I still have a few more miscellaneous experiences I want to give my opinion on before we wrap up. First are pop-up museums. Pop-up museums are exhibits that come to town, usually temporarily rent space in a vacant office building, and sell tickets to some kind of experience. The first one of these that really got a lot of attention was the Van Gogh experience. In the end, this kind of wound up being a lot of projectors in a dark room just projecting Van Gogh art on the walls. I'm sure some people enjoyed this, but a lot of people left wondering why they just paid to look at projections of art when we have a real world-class art museum right down the street for free. One that I'm not sure if it's been to D.C. or not, but has been to many places, is the Museum of Ice Cream. We also currently have the Museum of Failure. These pop-up museums advertise aggressively on social media, and they also go heavy on influencer marketing. I know this because I almost never get contacted to make ads because most companies have learned I don't make ads. But these guys still contact me and ask if I want to quote-unquote collaborate with them, which usually just means make them an ad. And it's kind of smart from an advertising perspective. All of a sudden, you're flipping through social media and all the people you follow on Instagram or TikTok are talking at the same time about how much fun they had at this pop-up museum. Someone I know who went to one of these and didn't have a particularly good time, described it as a paid Instagram background, which I feel is kind of accurate. For me, pop-up museums are a skip. These are usually sold on a site called Fever. I steer clear of anything sold on that website. What about shopping? A lot of people like to save up and do a shopping spree while they're on vacation. If that's you, then there are some decent shopping options in D.C., But to me, the best place to go for a shopping experience is Georgetown because it has a good mix of big chain stores, luxury brands, and smaller boutiques. If you're into shopping, an afternoon in Georgetown is a do. If you're not into shopping, you can still enjoy Georgetown for other reasons. Or if you're traveling with someone who wants to shop but you don't, Georgetown is good because you can split up. I have an entire video about Georgetown with ideas for non-shopping things to do over on the YouTube channel. Down the street from Georgetown is the Kennedy Center, officially the John F. Kennedy Center for the Performing Arts. This is a world-class performing arts venue. And yes, I know it's not as famous as Broadway in New York City, but the caliber of performances is comparable. In addition to musicals and plays, they also have opera, dance, symphony, comedy, ballet, jazz, and more. You can do a tour of the building or check out the view from the terrace. If you're at all into performing arts, there is something on the schedule that probably interests you. And if that's the case, the Kennedy Center is a do. Now, let's do professional sports. I've learned from years of giving tour that some people are just not sports fans, and that's okay. If you're not a sports fan, this is all a skip. I am personally a big fan of sports. Obviously, I like our local teams, but I also like checking out stadiums and ballparks and just experiencing the atmosphere of sporting events. Just this year, I went to the U.S. Open Tennis Tournament in New York City and thought it was great. Highly recommend that if you're into sports. In D.C., we have professional teams in just about every league. I am going to do a full-blown podcast episode about sports, hopefully soon, But for now, which sports you can do depends on the season when you're visiting. Most people who visit Washington, D.C. come in the spring and summer, which overlaps primarily with baseball season. And I think baseball is actually the most accessible sport for visitors because there are a lot of games, the tickets are not that expensive if you're okay with not great seats, and it's a pretty chill, family-friendly atmosphere. In the fall and winter months, we have NBA basketball, and hockey. Both are fun experiences, especially if you've never been to a game before. The longest season, I think, is soccer, which runs from roughly early March through October. We have two professional soccer teams, DC United and Washington Spirit. Both play at Audi Field, which I think is a really nice venue to watch a match. Unfortunately, all of these sports can be a little bit harder to schedule into a trip itinerary because the games are less frequent. 
But if you like sports and there is a game or a match happening while you're here, it's a do. All right, wow, (laughs) I'm out of iced coffee again, but before I go, let's recap everything from the second half of the episode. Arlington Cemetery is a do. The National Archives is a do. Library of Congress is a do. U.S. Botanic Gardens is a do if you're already in the area. Ford's Theater is a do if you're a Lincoln history buff. Seeing a show there is a skip unless there's something you really want to see. Bureau of Engraving and Printing is a skip. Mount Vernon is a do if you're really into George Washington or you're visiting over a holiday. Food trucks are a skip. Cupcakes are a skip. DC Signature Foods are a do. A food tour is a do. Ethiopian food is a do. Salvadorian food is a do. Chinese food in Chinatown is a skip. The Metropolitan Beer Trail is a do if you're into craft beer and a skip otherwise. A river cruise is a skip unless you really like being out on a boat. Water taxi is a skip as transportation, potentially a do if you really want to ride a boat. Metro is a do. Union Station is a skip unless you're traveling through the station to someplace else. Pop-up museums or anything that you buy on Fever is a skip. Shopping in Georgetown is a do if you like shopping. Doing other things in Georgetown is a do if you're in the neighborhood. And sports are a do if you like sports and a skip if you don't. Since I don't have a guest in this episode, I want to do one more plug for TripHacks DC Tours. I have been a tour guide for over a decade, and I love showing people around when they visit. And I am able to produce this podcast, the TripHacks DC YouTube channel, and all TripHacks DC content completely free because of everyone who signs up for a tour. So if that's you, or you're planning on signing up for one, then you are absolutely my favorite people. And if you want to find out more, head on over to the website and check it out. Thanks for listening to the Trip Hacks DC podcast. To see the show notes from today's episode, get additional resources for planning your trip, or to book a Trip Hacks DC guided tour, visit triphacksdc.com.